Ready to get into God's Word? All right, so let's get after it. This is a, um, a series re-opener, and for those of you who are newer to Harvest, uh, you may be wondering why we're jumping into Luke's Gospel in chapter 18, and that's because we've been after this for a few years now. In fact, we started the Luke series. Anybody know what year we started it in? 2013. 2013, we started Luke's Gospel, and uh, so we've been going at it uh, a, a section at a time, uh, a little bit every year, not every single week, of course, but uh, for those of you who care about this kind of stuff, and I really do, um, from now until July, uh, we're going to do a, uh, the next uh, four chapters. I'm going to preach 15 messages. It'll cover Luke 18 through 21, and then we'll take a break from it, do some other things, and the series is going to end next year in 2019, two weeks after Easter. And so about a year from now, 10 more messages next year. So we have 65 messages down to date. We have 25 messages to go, 90 messages in all to cover this gospel. And some people might be wondering, why'd you pick Luke's gospel? And uh, one of the reasons why we picked it was because it is the longest gospel and it is the most detailed gospel. And we just wanted to take in as much as we could about Jesus during this series. And so Luke seemed to be uh, the natural place uh, to go. It's detailed, it's rich. And did you know this, that uh, Luke is primarily written to a non-Jewish audience, and I checked the database, and most of us are non-Jewish here, so I thought that was a good fit for the Gospel of Luke. It really is written from more of a Western rather than an Eastern mindset, and so that's helpful uh, to us. Um, part, it's part one, again, I don't know if you knew this, but Luke is part one of a two-part series that includes the book of Acts. And so some of you I know right away you're wondering, when we're done Luke, are we going to go into a multi-year series in the book of Acts? And the answer to that question is, maybe. <laughs> but you might have to give me a year off from Luke for a while in Luke's writings. Now, also, Luke was a physician given to detail and really investigating things, and he was also the missionary companion of Paul, so he brings the Apostle Paul's perspective to things, and he went to great pains to write what he calls in the first few verses of Luke's gospel, an orderly account to his friend Theophilus. And in fact, the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts were both written to a single individual called Theophilus. And he wanted Theophilus, he goes on to say, that you, Theophilus, might have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. And when I think about the world that we live in, and I think this is probably true, as true for you as it is for me, like we live in a world that's filled with so many uncertainties. Our own lives are filled with so many uncertainties. And I want to have something solid beneath my feet, don't you? I want to have some things that I can say, these are rock solid, I believe them, they're never going to change, I'm so certain about these things, because so much else in my life is uncertain. And so we want to get that from this gospel, we want to have that same certainty that Luke desired for Theophilus. And then once we get that certainty along the way, as we're studying this gospel, we're discovering some things about it that this is actually a radical call to see the world the way Jesus sees it and to live our lives the way Jesus lived his. And that's no small thing. You can't come here and hear the gospel and take it lightly or be dismissive of it in any way. I mean, this is serious, radical calling that we have from Jesus Christ. We can't be careless with it. 
I think about James 1.22 where we can't be hearers of the word and not also doers of it. I mean, your obligation when you come here and hear the gospel today is that God would put it on you that you must be a doer of the thing that you're hearing. And honestly, as a pastor, most pastors won't say something like this. It's not a great church growth strategy to say it would be better. It would be better for you to not come and therefore not hear. It would be better for you to do that than to come and hear and not do. So this is radical. This is serious. This is like life altering. Nothing's going to be the same again every time we get the gospel open and look at it. And so with all of that said in his backdrop and kind of getting us back into the series, here we are in message number 66. We're going to hear Jesus teaching a parable that gets us after this question, what's my response going to be when I've suffered an injustice and am discouraged because I'm seeing that things aren't going to change or aren't going to change in my lifetime. So this is a message on injustice. I'm going to read the text that's in front of us today. I'm not going to pray because Roger's prayed and Jordan's prayed and we're prayed up and we're just going to get after the word. Sound good? All right, so let's, let's look at the text together. Luke 18, 1 to 8. And he, Jesus, told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I'll give her justice so that she'll not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Now, there's no doubt this is a message about injustice. The basis of it is injustice, and there's no doubt we are surrounded by injustice. Many people in this room, in fact, have suffered or are suffering at this time an injustice. You have an adversary of some kind, whether human or otherwise, that's coming at you in a way that is unfair and unjust, and you are afflicted by it. There are others of us who are not particularly suffering, suffering an injustice, but when we look around at others or we look at the world or we check our news feed, we're seeing that there's injustice all around us. And for those who are suffering it personally, and even for those who are suffering under the weight of it for others, it can be so discouraging, again, especially when and you look and see that it doesn't appear like anything's going to change. And so the point of this parable is to get us to a place where we're not discouraged, not losing heart over this. And so we're going to look at the parable in terms of really the way it's laid out. We're going to look at it in terms of God's part in this, God's response, and my response or my part in it. So that's how we're going to break it down. So here's what we're going after. When I've suffered an injustice and am discouraged, my part is to, first of all, pray persistently. Pray persistently. 
Now, before Jesus actually tells the parable, when you see, you see this in verse one, Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, prefaces the parable in a way that you, you kind of wish that every single section of scripture were laid out in this way, because what Luke does is he gives us the interpretation of the parable right up front. He tells us what we need to be looking for in the parable and what it means. He says, um, he, he says that this parable, he told them a parable to the effect that, one, they ought always to pray, and two, not lose heart. So now everything you're going to see in the parable is interpreted through that grid. And so this isn't just a passage on prayer. It's not like so many other passages we could go to in the scripture and just learn about prayer, all kinds of different manners of praying. But this is a prayer specific to injustice, and you see that in the parable. This is about someone who has been afflicted in a very specific way. We're praying to God for him to make it right. Something is not right in my life, and I need that to be right. When we start talking about this kind of prayer, I think this is where it gets super personal and where we can really empathize and feel the pain of it. Because again, there's hardly a person in the room who hasn't experienced injustice either themselves or seen it in someone else who they love or someone they care about and to feel the pain of that. So we're talking about a prayer that's intensely personal, one that we can truly identify with and, and, and flows up from the depths of our being and the sorrows that we have. And so we're watching this widow. And of course, the, we're supposed to identify with the widow in the parable. Now, the parables are more, off, more often than not fictitious stories. So Jesus is using an extended metaphor. He's making up a story to make a point about persistent prayer in the face of injustice. This person in the parable happens to be a widow, but she's really a stand-in for anybody who's suffering an injustice. So whatever your brand of injustice is, you can insert yourself into the story in the place of the widow. And she kept coming to him. Again, we're talking about persistent prayer. This is what she was modeling. Notice verse 3, she kept coming to him. She didn't stop. Every day she's coming and making an appeal to the judge to hear her case and rule in her favor. It, it goes on to say, the judge actually says, verse 5, that she keeps bothering me. I love the idea of the woman being a bother from his perspective. And I know springtime is coming. I've checked the calendar. Springtime is coming. Believe Canada. Springtime is coming, but with springtime, we know as awesome as that is, and the weather starts getting warmer, and the snow all disappears, and the ice goes off the lake, and it's just awesome to be back in springtime, and then in, a, in an act of, uh, of injustice, the, air's beco the air becomes uh, filled with mosquitoes. How is this fair? And so you're out in your backyard because you've been cooped in all winter and you're coming out and you're trying to enjoy it and the mosquitoes are all around you, bothering you, upsetting what you believe to be your peace and what you deserve. And that's how this judge is viewing this woman. She's like a mosquito who won't go away. She keeps bothering him because she's so persistent in her appeals, in her prayers. And then Jesus, in commenting on the parable, again, we're just trying to build this case for persistent prayer. Jesus said that the justice, that justice actually comes to believers, verse 7, who cry to him day and night. 
who are persistent in their cries before the Lord for justice. And so persistent prayer is the thing. Don't ever give up if you're suffering injustice. Then the question comes, how long do I have to keep this up? How long do I keep praying about my condition, the state of my affairs, the injustice that I'm facing? If I've gotten to the place where I realize I'm going to have this till the end of my days, do I keep praying about it? And the answer is a resounding yes. Will you persist in praying even if it's taking what you think is too long? See, it always... So much of this always just comes down to a, a difference between my perspective and God's. It comes down to God's perspective on time is just so different than ours. I mean, case in point, Jesus said that he was coming soon. My perspective is 2,000 years is not soon. <laughs> is that fair? That doesn't, I mean, it seems to me that, that God and I have a different understanding of the definition of soon. But God, of course, I'm down here on the timeline just with, just like all of you, we're down here on the timeline, we're grinding it out literally second by second. God is um, above and actually outside of time, so he sees things more as a whole. And his perspective, of course, is the better perspective on things, and I want to have his perspective. David Garland, who's one of the commentators I'm using throughout this series, he just said it this way, the Lord's timetable seems frustratingly slow only when clocked by impatient humans. I will be the first to confess I am an impatient human. I fall into that category. Who would like to confess with me that you are an impatient human being, right? And a bunch of you didn't raise your hands and you're lying. <laughs> we all want it. We all want it. On this point, we're all impatient. We all want justice now. We want God to come through for us in our timing and what Jesus is putting in front of us is this, unwavering prayer in the face of injustice. And, and I hear the Apostle Paul's words, just three little words from 1 Thessalonians 5.17 where he said, pray without ceasing. And I have to believe that he's thinking about this. Pray without ceasing. Now, don't misunderstand that. Pray without ceasing isn't 24-7 prayer. It isn't like I, that's the only thing I could ever do because that's ridiculous. We have commands to do other things. We need to eat meals. We need to sleep. We need to spend time with each other. We need to serve Christ. We need to go to work. We, we can't pray without ceasing. That's not what it means. Prayer without ceasing is a consistent pattern of prayer in my life. And as it pertains to injustice, what it really means is that I prayed yesterday about this injustice in my life, and I'm going to pray again today about this injustice in my life, and tomorrow I'm going to pray about this injustice in my life, and the day after that, I'm going to pray again about this injustice in my life. And the pattern of my life, every single day, maybe morning and night, I'm going to appeal to God about this injustice that's what it means to pray without ceasing. I'm going to keep praying until I hear from God. I'm going to keep praying till he makes it right. And will you do that? Will you pray persistently? Will you pray without ceasing to pray? Now, secondly, that's the first part of my part. The second one, hand in glove, goes together. 
because I can hardly believe that you can pray persistently without also trusting implicitly. I need to trust God implicitly. So if you like to mark in your Bibles, you can uh, look at verse 5 there, and the parable actually ends at the end of verse 5. So you can put a little line there, a little hash, just to show the difference between what happens in verse 6 and what happened in verse 5. So the parable ends, and Jesus says that the big lesson in this is actually found in what the unjust judge has done and what he says. So verse 6, the, we're, we're told again about the unrighteous judge, and in verse 7 and 8, the first part of verse 8, he says, namely, this is what God is going to do. He's going to come through for us. He's going to vindicate us. The ruling is going to go in our favor. And more about that in a moment when we talk about God's part. But the final question that he asks related to all of this really gets after it for us. Will I trust him implicitly? Will I trust him without reservation for this matter of injustice in my life? And here's the test. It comes right at the end of verse 8 when he asks this question. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? In other words, and this is still future for us. We're talking about a gospel that was written 2,000 years ago, but we're still waiting for the Son of Man to come. Will he find faith on earth? When he sets things right and he brings us justice, will he find people here who are continually pleading with him for that justice to come, waiting for him to make it right? trusting his timing and waiting for his return. Is that going to be you? Will you be trusting him implicitly when he comes? Now, everything in the scripture is a purpose. God's very intentional about it all. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit in the scripture so that we would hear it. And you have to believe that this particular parable is here because God knew that trusting him with these matters of injustice was going to be a problem for us. That this is actually something we'd struggle with. Because I can get to the place of thinking that somehow God does not have this all under control. I can be suffering injustices in my life and and in my attitudes and maybe even sometimes with my words saying to God, I don't think you've really thought all this through, Lord. That somehow God isn't, despite what we're saying, God loves us, God's for us. Despite all the singing during the worship time, I'm sitting here thinking, God really does not have my well-being at heart. And if he did, he would bring me justice now. Well, I know how how easily I can get there. How easily I can just say, you know what? I'm done talking to God about it. He's not coming through for me. That's pretty obvious. I'm going to take matters into my own hands. I'm going to push back against what I think is unfair and unjust. I'm a little tired of singing the songs and being with the people. I'm a little tired of hearing the message. God isn't coming through with me. My, uh, my, my times in worship are going to become a little less frequent. I, I'm going to skip out on my small group. I think I need some time off from my serving. God's not p- pulling through for me. Some may even find 
if you're making those decisions that you're only really a breath and a decision away from walking away from your profession of faith. Because we don't trust him. You're angry at God because you don't think that he's handled your situation very well. And so Jesus asks this question and he leaves it, you just notice, verse 8 ends. He just leaves the question hanging in the air. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? And he leaves it hanging there because he wants us to grapple with the question. He wants us to grapple with it today and tomorrow and until the day he comes. And in fact, rather than leaving it in in this third-person generic us thing, he wants us to actually make that super personal. And some of you might even write it down right now in your notes or in your journal or in your Bible. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith in me? And to ask yourself that question every day. If the Son of Man comes today, Will he find faith in me today? And then when you get to that place where you're trusting him implicitly and you really believe you've arrived there, then turn it from a question into a statement, into a proclamation, into a pronouncement, into a resolution. When the Son of Man comes, he will find faith in me. I trust him implicitly. That's what the widow is doing. Relentless in her appeals. And then, don't miss this, she was, she was trusting that the judge was the only one who could make it right. Now, the judge, of course, in the parable is God. He's the only one that can make it right. Whatever your injustice is, whatever injustice disturbs you and and, and is a problem for you and causes you to grieve, God's the only one who can make it right. We have to trust him with that. So many injustices in the world, and who else can we trust to make them right? We certainly can't trust government or movements. In other words, we can't really trust ourselves to bring about any justice in this world. In fact, so many injustices have actually been allowed and legalized and legitimized by governments. I'm not interested in becoming political here, but let me just say, we cannot trust small L liberals or small C conservatives to actually enact justice in this world. We're not going to make things right with legislation or pep talks or rallies designed to pump up the human race with we can do this together slogans. We're not going to do this with hashtags and protests and boycotts. The dark side of this, and it needs to be said, the dark side of it is we're not actually going to make things right on this side of eternity. We're not going to affect any kind of lasting justice in this world because ultimately we understand rooted in our theology this world is lost and irreparably broken by the curse of sin. We can only trust God and his time to come through for us and for this world. Now that's the dark side of it. 
That's rooted in what we understand about this world, about the effects of sin in this world, how sin-tainted it is, and how this world must come to an end for God to recreate and make something awesome in eternity. So we understand all of that. But, but, having said that, we don't stop praying for justice in the world now. We keep doing as the widow did, God vindicate now, and she actually saw justice on this side of death. God still does intervene in this world. Some victories are possible. Some change can happen. And so we should not, as the followers of Jesus Christ, let our praying and our trusting of God and our understanding of the brokenness of the world, we shouldn't let any of that be an excuse for not doing everything we can to bring the kingdom of God down to earth now. To take the values, the principles of God's kingdom and enact them wherever we can in the world today. So none of this is an excuse for not acting. You know, we're not actually told in the parable what the widow's offense was, what this adversary of hers was bringing against her, but we can suspect that Jesus actually chose a widow for the story because that was the issue. Women in the first century, in first century Israel, were um, a little better than slaves, not much. No real voice, uh, no power, no authority. A woman's identity was entirely tied to her husband's. In the case of this widow then, she not only was marginalized because she was a woman, she was doubly marginalized because she was a widow and her husband was no longer with her. She literally had no voice. Perhaps the issue that she was facing as a widow was about compensation and her ongoing care. How would she actually make ends meet and live? Perhaps the conflict was with her deceased husband's family who were not compensating her or care for, caring for her in the way that they ought to have. And her appeal to the judge was for that. I have to believe that prior to going to the judge, she had actually gone to the family and sought them out. I suspect that she tried as best she could with all the tools she had to make it right on her own. To bring justice to her situation before she appealed to the judge. She had done all she could to make it right. And Christians, above all others, know that the world is broken and won't be righted until Jesus comes. And while we pray and watch for his coming, we live out and enact in every way possible the principles and values of his kingdom here and now. We should seek justice now in whatever way we can. And I, I, I say that, and it comes off so easily. And I recognize that the thing we're talking about here is exceedingly hard, both parts of this, the praying persistently, exceedingly hard, and the trusting implicitly, so hard because of the specific issues that we're dealing with and how painful these things are and how deep, deeply rooted the injustice is. And what I understand is as hard as this is, the principle is always true. The hardest things are always on the, uh, the, the best things are always on the other side of the hardest things. Isn't that true? The best things are always on the other side of the hardest things. And so when I start to think about this, and just specifically, what are we talking about when we talk about injustice here? It reflects all kinds of pain. 
Maybe some of you are thinking more globally, and again, we see this in the news on a regular basis, but we think of warfare and displaced peoples and, and refugees and poverty and malnutrition and infant mortality and, and slavery and famine and disease. We think about the oppression of minority groups and genocide and the marginalization of women and the use of child labor and religious persecution. We think about school shootings happening just south of the border. Some of that overlaps with our own country, and we see here enough injustice to fill a lifetime, racism and the gap between rich and poor, the preborn who are aborted. We think of the opioid a crisis that's gripping our cities. We think about the sex trade, government corruption, the suppression of academic freedom on university campuses, of homelessness and crime, and families devastated by drunk drivers, and lotteries which are merely attacks on the poor. We think of ageism and the discrimination of the disabled. And some of that is not only in our country, but it's personal to some in this room. And personal injustices include all of that and being a child of divorce or a spouse of divorce that you didn't desire, those who have been sexually abused, those who have lost their jobs because of restructuring or policies or personal issues, those who have lost their reputations because of false accusations, those who have been injured as a result of the negligence of another. To all of this, Jesus says, trust me and keep praying for it to change. That's my part. Pray persistently, trust implicitly, and God's part then, notice, when I've suffered an injustice and am discouraged, God's part is to vindicate completely. Now, we've hinted at this already. It's obviously the basis for the parable. We're to vindicate, be vindicated. He will vindicate us completely. Now, look at the text. We see that the judge in the parable vindicated the woman. He gave her justice. Verse 4, for a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man. Now, pause right there. He doesn't fear God. He doesn't respect man. In other words, this man cares nothing for the great commandment, which is to love God and love people. He doesn't do that. Now, I've already said that in the parable, the judge represents God, and in that way, he certainly doesn't, but, but it, it helps us understand God because this judge stands in such sharp contrast to God. And you're going to see why that's so important in a moment. This guy's not, this guy's not like God at all. So while he refused, verse 4 again, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, verse 5, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice. So he comes through for her. And then Jesus asks the rhetorical question in verse 7, will not God, here's where we come to it, will not God give justice to his elect, to believers, to those who love him, to his sons and daughters? who cry to him day and night, will he delay long over them? The answer is no, he's not going to delay. Yes, he is going to come through for them. God's going to vindicate and bring justice. And God, Jesus here in the parable uses this judge who is in every way different than God to make his point. And I can't say it better than the Bible Knowledge Commentary, so I'll throw this up on the screen. If the unjust judge would give justice, then imagine how God, the just judge, will see that they get justice and quickly. 
few weeks ago, um, actually before we left on our break, uh, friends uh, gave me um, a book uh, to read along the way, and I hadn't originally uh, thought about reading it. I took a bunch of other books to read, but then I picked it up the second week I was there. The book is called Steal Away Home, and it's an interesting historical novel. Um, it draws in the lives of two historical characters, uh, Charles Spurgeon, who many of you will know as the Prince of Preachers back in the 1800s, London, England, very famous preacher, influencing generations of pastors to this day. Um, and then this man who you may not know named Thomas Johnson. I'm going to show a picture of him here. Thomas Johnson uh, lived a world away from Charles Spurgeon. He lived in Virginia, in the U.S. South in the mid-1800s, uh, or through the 1800s. Uh, he lived in Virginia, which meant that he was a slave, uh, lived on a plantation uh, in Virginia, and, um, and the first part of his life was a very, very difficult life. The book really is about Spurgeon and Johnson getting together and becoming friends uh, years down the road. Uh, but listen to this, just a description of uh, Thomas Johnson's life uh, from the book. The life of Thomas Johnson was ruled by rhythms, schedules, and order. From sunrise to sunset, time did not belong to him, but solely to the master and his foreman. He was told when to wake up, when to eat, when to work, when to sleep. Any deviance from the master's design was met with sharp and brutal punishment. This sort of daily oppression robbed Thomas of what little humanity onto which he still clung. His childhood had been steeped in loneliness and anger, and now a slave for over two decades, Thomas felt barely human. The sense of hopelessness festered, choking Thomas from the inside, and escaping to the north was an idea that had consumed his thoughts since boyhood. Thomas Johnson didn't know the Lord. He had taken, been taken on many occasions to the post to be whipped, and he knew the horrors of what it meant to be a slave. He didn't know what life was like outside of the plantation at all, and he was brutally treated by his masters. He thought about escaping, but he had a friend, a fellow slave named Ezekiel, who discouraged him from ever thinking about leaving, something that was a really fearful thing for any slave to do. If they weren't successful and they were caught, it would surely mean death. So Ezekiel advised him against escaping, saying, and this is a quote from the book, I'm telling you, boy, you're looking for freedom in all the wrong places. Thomas thought a lot about that, and one night he crept across the compound where the slaves lived from his cabin over to Ezekiel, something that was forbidden to do, and he could have been beaten for it. And he slipped into Ezekiel's cabin where a number of, of slaves had gathered. Around the glow of a candle, they were whisper singing a hymn. They were praying, and Ezekiel spoke a word about stealing away home, stealing away to Jesus. And in the quietness of that cabin, Thomas Johnson gave his life to Jesus Christ and found freedom. Now, what's curious about it is though he was suffering a massive injustice as a slave, he never again sought to escape or even thought about it. Because though the master owned his body, the Lord Jesus had his heart. And he was free in all the ways that were most important. In 1865, he was emancipated along with the other slaves. He found his freedom. He eventually made his way to the city of Chicago. He trained as a pastor and he became a missionary back to um, his people in Cameroon, West Africa. He met Charles Spurgeon along the way as well, and they 
had an amazing friendship. But before all of the vindication that God brought into his life, he continued to live and endure the injustice of slavery, of poverty, of beatings, of separation from his loved ones. He endured all of that because he had the freedom in Christ and he awaited the day when Christ would vindicate him. And God did give him that on this side of eternity. He managed to see his freedom. But many thousands and thousands of slaves never got that chance. And many of them trusted Christ as Savior and never had that justice on this side of eternity. And we start to think about vindication for Thomas Johnson or, or, or justice coming to anybody in this room. And we realize that God offering this vindication only comes to us because he sent his son Jesus Christ to die an unjust death for us. It's all rooted in the crucifixion of Christ. We know it's an unjust death. You and I read the scriptures and we know that Jesus was perfect. He lived a sinless life. He didn't deserve to die. You and I understand that because we're followers of Christ and because we trust the scriptures. But even those who were not of Christ recognized that his death was unjust. In Luke chapter 23, in fact, Pontius Pilate, think what you will of this man, Roman governor over that part of the Roman emperor, uh, empire, you know that he's a pagan worshiper. He doesn't believe in Jesus. He's not, a, he's not a follower of the ways of Judaism. He isn't looking for a Messiah. He's just trying to govern this province of Rome. When the Jewish leaders brought Jesus to him to condemn him, a Pilate said this in Luke 23, I find no guilt in this man. If you put him to death or you have me put him to death, it's unjust. They kept pressing him, kept pressing him. And later on in the chapter, Pilate says this again, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish him and release him. Well, the religious leaders were having none of it. Their insistent cries to Pilate were for Jesus to be crucified. And Pilate says a third time, why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. Even the pagans knew that Jesus' death was unjust. But it was one that Pilate couldn't fight at the time. And so Jesus, the only righteous one from a human perspective, was put to death for reasons of political expediency and for no other reason. Now, please understand, that's not the first major injustice against God. The first injustice against God happened in the garden with the first man and woman. They've been given everything. Sin hadn't come into the world. They were literally living in the perfect situation. There was no shame, no guilt, no fear, none of it. They thought they deserved more, and they, they went face to face with God to try and be as he was, knowing good from evil, and they did the one thing, just one thing they weren't allowed to do. So offensive. An injustice against God to say that what he had given to them wasn't enough. As we think about injustice today and all the things that are happening in the world today, please understand 
that this is all charged to our account, not God's. That sin is in the world because we chose it. That injustice is in the world because this is our doing. This is what we have brought on ourselves. Now here's here's the twist. Our God is awesome, isn't he? Isn't he? Here's, Here's the way God is making it right. Even though the injustice is our fault, even though we brought this all down on ourselves, God is working in history and through his son to make our mess right again, to clean it up. God provided a way to reverse the injustice. And what was injustice at the hands of men, the death of Christ, was actually justice in the hands of God. Justice for us. The justice of God demanded the death of his sons if human beings were ever to be vindicated and forgiven. God's wrath had to be satisfied. And so Jesus' unjust death was justice for you and me. So God will completely vindicate those who are our own, those who have repented of their sins, turned to Jesus Christ in faith, and received the forgiveness that the Father offers us in love. All will be made right. The answer to the question in verse 7 is a resounding yes. Will not God give justice to his elect? Yes, it's coming. God will vindicate. And then finally this, that's the eventually he's going to vindicate us. But but God's also going to encourage us immediately, right now. He wants to encourage us. And that's the point of the parable, that in the face of injustice, you and I, verse 1, would not lose heart. But then back to this, again, where we started, the passing of time is the issue that causes us the most discouragement. Why isn't God acting now? God wants to encourage me, and I still have all this angst about it. I've had times in my my own life where I feel like I was facing some injustice. I remember going to Psalm 13, and David is praying there, and he's like, how long? Will you forget me forever? I prayed those prayers. I'm sure some of you have as well. Those those are the questions that are rolling around in all of our hearts. And, And Jesus acknowledges the struggle with that question. Will he delay long over them? Because from our perspective, a lifetime or even a few years of waiting for God to make things right is just too long. We 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 want what one American pastor titled his book several years ago, which is so errant, we ought to be able to see how wrong it is, but the title of the book was, Your Best Life Now. I don't want my best life now. I mean, if this is it, heaven's not going to be very much. I want my best life then, thank you very much. At best, that's just short-sighted, your best life now. Your best life now is not guaranteed in the way that most people think it is, that that justice will always come my way, that blessing will always flow to me, that I'll always have everything I need and want. 
Because even if injustice lasts a lifetime, God offers encouragement now in the face of it. So it's not your best life now, but it's your best life, he just missed one word, your best life for now. It's your best life for now. It's what Jesus talked about in John 10, 10, the abundant life or the fully alive life. And, and Jesus offers that to us now. Thomas Johnson had it. Even while he was a slave, he was living the abundant life in Christ. That's awesome to think about. And it's where every single person here can be. And God, I can say with complete confidence, God doesn't want anyone to leave here today discouraged without knowing that he's going to come through for you. So keep praying. Keep appealing to him, pressing him for justice in your life. Even if you're feeling the weight of it, God wants you to be encouraged knowing that he's coming through for you. That he's going to make everything right again. That he's going, to, he's going to heal your diseases. He's going to heal your brokenness. That he's going to restore what has been taken from you. And multiply it. That he's going to, and this part, some people think sounds unchristian, and it's not because it's rooted right here in the scriptures. That he's going to bring his wrath and judgment against those who have hurt you and are still unrepentant. Please know that he's going to come through for you in that very specific way. His justice is encouraged, is, is coming. His justice is coming, and I want you to be encouraged by that. Well, if you didn't pick it up already, and I've kind of hinted at it along the way, more than hinting, this really is, to use the big theological word, this is an eschatological prayer. In other words, it looks to the future, it looks to the end of all things, the end of days. And our trust really is confidence in a coming Savior. His work on the cross got it all started. He brought redemption to the world in the form of personal salvation. And you and I need to make the decision to follow Him find forgiveness, find the peace that he gives and look for his return. The world will be redeemed and justice will be brought when the Son of Man comes. Our part is to pray persistently, trust implicitly, and leave the rest to God and let him find faith in me and in you when he comes. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, thank you uh, for your love for us, for speaking with clarity to us. Thank you, Father, for the promise that justice will come. Every single matter of righteousness will be dealt with. Those whose cause is right and who have suffered harm will be vindicated by you. That's such an awesome thing to think about. We don't need to defend ourselves. You're going to do it for us. You're going to make everything right. And there's so much pain, Father, in this room. And you're going to heal all of it. Come soon, Lord Jesus. Come for us.
We pray in your son's name.